This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Tom. I'm here with two extraordinary people who hopefully you've seen on Impact Theory as well. But we have Peter Diamandis and Stephen Kotler who have written a new book called The Future is Faster Than You Think. These guys have collaborated on two other books as well. Uh, absolutely extraordinary. And they've got another one coming out, which maybe they'll talk about on camera. We'll see. Um, but super excited. The new book is absolutely amazing. And as somebody who considers himself somewhat of a junior futurist, uh, I'm really excited to dive into this stuff with you guys. And I wanted to start like, obviously when you're researching this stuff, there's gotta be moments where you're sort of gobsmacked with what's coming. <laughs> what are you guys really excited about that either surprised you or is as cool as you thought it would be? Oh, Stephen, you want to, you want to jump that's in first? That's an interesting question. What is actually surprised me or been as cool as I thought it was going to be? That's a really I mean, I where we open the book, it's which is with flying cars, and um, I remember uh, I was in Dubai was the first time I saw one. Right, I, it was one of the quadcopter drones that they you actually built. saw it. Flying. Yeah, it was a flying taxi. The Ehang, the Ehang, e exactly. China. The Ehang, yeah. um, and they had it. It was a, which, by the way, just went public as a company. Oh, did it really? And they produced thousands of these things. Uh, another mutual friend, Martin Rothblatt, got an order for a thousand. Plus oh, of wow. these, so that's crazy that yeah, these are, are these are put. single single passenger, fully autonomous. You use your app to call it. You where you want to go. You hop in. You don't touch anything, and it takes you there. Is it already commercially available? It meaning is, I could order a. Air taxi they've built thousands Dubai. of them. They're operational in a few locations. There was, uh, it's I mean, regulatory. This was four right years now. ago, and I like hovered in it. Like they were letting people get inside and taking it off and they weren't flying it around, but I was hovering Whoa. five feet off the deck. Um, when, that was the timeline in the book that I think shocked me the most. Hearing the whole thing about um, Uber and their 2023 timeline. I was like, One of the Whoa. stories that's not in the book. So the man who introduced us is a guy named Dejer Molnar and Dejer built one of the early, it was a flying motorcycle. It was a motorcycle with helicopter mm. blades basically that folded out. And I remember Literally, I was living in LA at the time, and he, I remember when he walked into my apartment and he like laid out the plans. He had come from your house, I think, and Probably. laid out the plans. And he's like, and I was like, Desher, what is that? That looks like a flying car thing. And he's like, that's exactly what it is. And it flies. And it was, I mean, it was already, this was five or six years ago. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, it's the first flying gardens in my living room mm. and Desher struggled to get it off the ground and struggled and never went anywhere with it. And 
So I, and I was sort of pacing flying car development off of our friend and suddenly, you know, a year, it was a year difference. And suddenly, you know, there were, we were writing about 25 companies in the book and they're now, what did you say? There, 100, there are over a hundred companies, uh, building different sort of, uh, Cambrian explosion designs of these flying and, and the term that they like to use is aerial mobility versus flying cars, right? It's like, how, what, what's because, you know, you didn't, you started calling a car the horseless carriage. Right. And, yeah, and, and so it's like you're describing something related to what we have today. And so there, there needs to be a new name for it and there will be. But the numbers are over a billion a year is being invested. Can we have a contest, by the way? I mean, do we have to go with aerial mobility? Can't we have a contest? Like <laughs> something cool. Would be nice. something, right? well, well, aerial Uber, mobility. Uber calls it aerial ride sharing. Okay. Um, and it's fine, but the fact is, what's exciting about it is all the major players: Boeing, Airbus, Bell Helicopter, Embraer, Bell, no Helicopter. Yeah, Bell, That's just Bell. Uh, they're all playing plus a hundred startups and a billion or so. So what's beautiful is it's really, and we, and what Steve and I uh, talk about in the future is faster than you think is the convergence of technology. So mm -hmm. here's a perfect example of a capability, a new service, a new business model only made possible because of convergence. Um, and it's in this case, it's, uh, it's computation, machine learning, Material sciences, 3D printing, AI, robotics, AI, and all of those coming together uh, to make, and battery technologies to make something that was not possible before. Mm. Right? I just heard something about battery technology that there was some big breakthrough recently that's like 15 times. Oh God, I can't remember the name of the compound. It's lithium something. Do you hear about this? I, I, I've, I read about <laughs> these breakthroughs constantly and there are you know the the challenge is that we all experience what we experience and then from orthogonal you know adjacencies come these breakthroughs so all of a sudden this is now possible mm. and that's one of the things that that i think we hit on the book really heavy is that um that the rate of change is much faster than anybody thinks and so yeah batteries have been great i mean I, I drive a, a Tesla, a new Model S. My wife has a Model X, and it's, you know, 300 miles range. I don't think about ever gassing up mm. again, right? And so soon there will be cars with 1,000-mile range, and you'll, you know, you'll charge it every couple of weeks. Do you really think, though, that people are going to buy cars? Like, the thing in the book that I found interesting was Jeff Holden's comment about our whole goal with the flying with car. The I know he didn't call that, but was to make it financially ridiculous to own a, to own a car. And already, I don't. So yeah. I take Uber everywhere. Yeah, if you I want me to lend you... you some money to buy one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Peter. That's <laughs> very kind. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I live in the country, so you still need, you still need vehicles. But I like, when was the last time you rented a car when you flew anywhere? Is, you know, and I, that was a huge business, right? I've got a Hertz card. I've got yep. like, you know, whatever. And I don't think I've rented a car. I can't tell you the last time I rented yeah. a car. I, I Ubered here to your studio this morning, you know, which is a 30 minute drive because I valued the 30 minutes on my computer and my, uh, you know, just heads down and getting 100%. stuff ready. Then the idea of me doing this, you know, 
crazy to drive me, thing. taking an Uber is the closest thing that we have right now to teleporting because I punch a button, a vehicle shows up, I step into the vehicle, I put my head down, I start working just like I would do no matter where I was, if I was in my office, whatever. Yeah. And then I pick my head up because I've hit my destination. I have no sense of the time passing because I'm just getting something else done that I would have done anyway. Yeah. And you guys are there. Yeah, I get car sick. Incredible. I can't look oh, at my lap. I get car sick. See, that, that, is, that is a problem that I would highly encourage you to find a way to solve because, dude, yeah. the, it is, that's a game changer. And I heard, I want to know if you guys know about this, that I heard in London they're really working hard to shut Uber down. And I thought my entire lifestyle is predicated on the existence of Uber. Yeah, I agree with you. It's interesting. When I talk to entrepreneurs, I say, listen, um, if you're thinking about where to base your company, you want to base it in a city or country that did not make Uber illegal. Mm. In other words, you want a pro-tech, you know. Um, so the question you asked, I think, is important. Um, I agree that the opening of the book, as Stephen said, with flying cars <laughs> is critical. Some other examples of what's going on. Uh, two that come to mind. One is this whole notion of quantum computing yeah. and what's possible. Um, this notion that in this past year, we, you know, we Google announced that they had demonstrated quantum supremacy, the ability of a quantum computer to do something that a classical computer could not what do. What did they have it do? Was it just showing quantum entanglement? It was, or? No, it was solving a mathematical problem uh, that, was, that would have taken the summit classical supercomputer like 10,000 years to do, wow. and they did it in minutes. Whoa. Right. So that was just a demonstration of this classical approach is solved by something in a quantum computing that was like... Well, wasn't it was like two weeks after that that Intel announced that their next line of chips is, are going to be quantum chips. What? That was t like two what weeks. Year? Two I didn't realize that we were getting that good with quantum uh, now, computing. Now, when are the, those quantum sh ships going to actually show up in your smartphone? Different right. question. And right. what will they What will they do? And, and, and Ray Kurzweil, who's a dear friend and, and business partner, basically says, listen, be very careful here. Quantum computers, while they're up and operational, uh, the error rate in these is still super high and they're not gonna be functional for doing the things that you wanna do for some number of years. But once they do, we're talking about being able to model weather systems, model traffic, mod modeling you pharmaceuticals, modeling you material sciences, uh, even do machine learning. There will be this massive step yeah. forward made how do possible. They, how do they solve the super cooling problem? So in the book you guys detail that they the place right now that has the yeah, super we're getting computing cooled cool, to the, zero, point zero zero three degrees Kelvin. Coldest which is like basically universe. absolute zero. Yeah. That yeah. it was colder than like the center of a black hole or some shit. And I was like, how the fuck do you put that in your cell phone? Um, like do because to hold the So it doesn't it doesn't on your cell phone, it's on the cloud. So all of okay. these, all of these companies, IBM, Google, Rigetti, are basically putting quantum computing services on the cloud. So you access them through a 5G network right. and you, you send your data that you want processed and the answer comes back. So you're not putting it. Just out of curiosity, by the way, when do you think we're going to get to 6G? <laughs> right? It, I, I mean, I, I, I'm just like, because the, the rate's been picking up, right? Each G, each successive G. Dude, right, dude, I'm sorry. I got My one bet. yesterday. You got one yesterday. <laughs> it's too bad. Damn. Uh, let, me, let me share another uh, amazing story that unfortunately didn't make the book. One of the challenges we had. Oh, God, it was terrible. Was uh, that, you know, we're being pushed to finish the book and turn it in. 
but every day is like, it's like I'm like, Stephen, we got to squeeze this, and yeah. Peter, we can't. You know, it's like this yeah. battle between yeah. us. And so one of the <clears throat> one of the stories that I love um, is a company here in LA uh, that my venture fund got invested in this last round called Relativity, mm. and they have built a massive uh, scale 3D printer factory, uh, and it's the combination of materials. 3D printing technology and robotics and machine learning. And what they're building first is they're 3D printing entire rockets. I heard about that. That's so fucking crazy. So they can 3D print a 90 to 95% of a rocket that we're talking, you know, 30 foot tall, mm. you know, six foot diameter, you know, 10 meters by two meters and do that in two weeks. Without Can you any imagine tooling. the stuff you would have blown up in your backyard <laughs> had you had Jesus. access to that? Have you heard his backyard blowing up stories yeah. from his childhood? Yeah. So it, it's, it is amazing. Now, normally <coughs> when you're 3D printing something, the cost is, is pretty outrageous, right? If you're making a one-off. So are these rockets astronomically expensive and they're just no. hoping that they'll come no, down? No, no, no. So it, they're fundamentally much, much cheaper because really? you're, not, you're not building the tooling. You're building layer by layer by layer, literally from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. and, and there's some assembly required. But uh, what's amazing about it is when you, and I've been in the rocket business. When you what's the parts reduction? Do you know? Um, orders of magnitude. Okay. Like hundreds X. But when you, when you commit to uh, building a complex device and you build the tooling, you can't go then and change the tooling. Right. But here you can build your rocket, launch the rocket, realize that the fin is a quarter inch too big here or the diameter needs to be this or whatever the case might be and make the edit. And two weeks later, you're printing a new version mm. and a new edited version. And you edit. so it's very rapid serial um, uh, iteration. And where I, you know, where does 3d printing win? Is it in things that are one off? Is it struggle personalization, at industrial scale? Is personalization. That... And, um, uh, and so for example, one of the things we wrote about in bold from Avi Reichenthal, who's, uh, our 3d printing, uh, guru, uh, there's Invisalign. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. so those are 3d printed where you scan the mouth and I print one for you, one for you, one for you. So all this personalization, but at volume at scale, and 3D printing, like you said, with battery technology, 3D printing is getting faster and faster and faster. Mm. And so it will compete uh, with classical manufacturing. I and think you got to, if you're considering buying a house, <coughs> right, if this is something you want to do over the next two to three years, say, you may want to wait, right? You may actually just, because it's going to be cheaper, easy, mm. I mean, orders of magnitude cheaper. Yeah, I've seen um, some of the houses get 3D printed, which is crazy town. I, well, I, when we wrote Abundance, right, Burr Kajnevis, it was at USC, we wrote about his yeah. work. He had just developed the first concrete printer. I remember talking to him about what's it going to take for multiple materials printing. Because obviously if you can't print the, the pipes inside the right. concrete walls or you can't right put the, put the electricity in, it doesn't work, right? It's just Then it's just a big fancy construct concrete layer right. um and he was talking in terms of timetables that like we blew by them so fast like his timetables were gone by the time bold was out and he hit them or no, missed, them? missed i mean okay. i mean like he was so he was like oh we're probably five to eight years from that and i think we were a year from actually being able to do that with multiple materials so they can already print that stuff they are starting to get to yeah, the yeah. Point. So there's a company called Mighty Buildings uh, that we write about. Again, one of my, my fund's investments that 
they will 3D print large components of a home uh, at their factory mm. and then assemble at the location. But you're talking about you know much faster and not an order of magnitude cheaper. It's like three or four times cheaper. But we're getting there. That's but you can. But we're we're 3D printing like uh, Dragonfly. I think is the name of the company that's 3D printing electronic circuits. Yeah. Right, which is pretty damn cool. Yeah, no shit. And that and we're at the 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 Chinese. I can't remember the name of the company when they built. I'm gonna get Winsun. this. Winsun when they built the, the not, not they were the they were doing the five story apartment building. I'm talking about the skyscraper where they used oh, modular no. construction and um, 3D printing, and they put up. I wanna. I'm gonna get the stories wrong, but somewhere around the line of 29 story skyscraper. 3D in printed. 19, 3D printing and modular construction. So exactly how Peter was talking so you about. Print it. a piece, stack it. it. Print, print a piece, stack it. Bring it in, stack it. Yeah. Whoa. In it was three weeks to build essentially a 60 story. It was like a story a day. Um, uh, uh, I mean, it's crazy. That that's insane. This, so I, I'm going to stop you guys there because you guys probably are a little numb to what it feels like to encounter this information for the first time when you're reading the book. I've spent enough time with you, Peter, to like I've been primed for a lot of this stuff. But even I, like reading the book, I was like flying cars in 2023. The fact that they've already built a 60 story building by 3D printing and stacking. Th this shit is so I, I right will, now. I will tell you. Crazy. My experience writing the book, and so I there's an editor, Michael Warden, who I've worked with for 25 years. So he he's he worked with us on Bold at Blow. He's been involved in our project, and my wife, who's also an author and reads everything I write. I got through part one of this book, and let uh, these two people who know our work intimately. Michael's worked on our books, and both of them came to me afterwards and went. This is terrifying. And I went, <laughs> I know I'm writing the book and I think it's terrifying. Yeah, so but it's that's amazing interesting because so, you're not terrified. So it's really important for me to, to share with everybody listening here. One of the reasons for the book He's right. is to get rid of this fear. Because mm -hmm. when people are in fear, most people fear the future, especially as the rate of acceleration is increasing. And fear is an awful place to come from. It is non-constructive. It is scarcity mindset. It is all these things. And a lot of the reason for the book is to give people a vision. I think of it as a hopeful, compelling, and abundant future mm. vision of the future so that you're excited about where the world is going. You sort of understand where it's going. If you have a roadmap for where we're heading, um, then you can put things in context and less fearful of it and being excited. We are racing towards a future of abundance, right? We are racing towards a future where uh, access to food, water, energy, healthcare, uh, you know, education, entertainment, all these things are effectively free and available to everyone. And but how do you deal with people? So you're obviously high in openness. I'm high in openness as a personality trait. I actually like change. And the moments of greatest disruption in my life, while from the outside may have been perceived as negative, for me it was just an exciting change. Now, I don't feel like I earned that. I feel like it's just a personality trait where I'm deeply comfortable and maybe even covetous of radical change. Mm -hmm. So I took to your teachings and your ideas very rapidly because I have what I will say is probably a naive, blind optimism towards the future. How do you help somebody who's low and open? Like to give you an idea, um, my wife and I were sitting on the couch in a certain order and I wanted to change the order so that I could be closer to the window. And like 
just that literally her positioning on the couch was like this world altering event for her and at first she was like no i don't want to do that i'm like wow you really like change at any level is a problem it's it's a whole different neural i mean neurobiologically right uh if people who are change friendly are they have dopamine dominant personalities right and loss aversion right Mm. which is the fear that whatever you have today if i take it away from you what comes next is worse which is the main reason people fear the future Right, it's built into us, yes. um, and it's interesting. I just was looking. I love at the, when Stephen talks like this. I was looking at the math <laughs> equations around loss aversion, like in terms of neural weighting, and you're actually like going up against. It's it's really complicated, but it's interesting, well, right? I, and want, I want you to finish that sentence. You're you're so, going up and getting people comfortable with the changes coming. You're going up against neurobiology. You're, well, you're going. You're, you're yeah. You're definitely going up against <laughs> dealing with loss aversion, right? So if you're not if you if you're not dopamine dominant, basically. Um, Dopamine is all about the future. The whole neurochemical is about what's coming next. It's mm. dopamine is the molecule of more, they call it, right? Like what's coming next. And if you're dopamine dominant, we are, you are. Um, change is really fun. You're really excited by it, right? The flip side is predominantly serotonin. There are other things that are involved in it. And you're, you tend to be politically conserved. Dopamine dominant people tend to be very, very liberal politically when they look at the, the stuff. Um, and it's all about loss aversion. It, if you uh, are flipped the other way, you're going to fight to hold. You want to be your conservative. You want to conserve what you have, right? And it's there's fun. So there's fundamental neuronal hardwiring in the way. Like I agree with Peter. Like you know, yes, I said the book is terrifying, but to me, it's gleefully terrifying. Um, and when I say it's terrifying, it's really like a truth. Like I don't think what's coming is bad. I just think to myself, oh my God, it's really fast. But mm. but here's the challenge. We've forgotten how fast things have changed. We already. Already. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, the, the notion that uh, you have the ability to verbally ask a question into the room <laughs> and, and get an answer, right? Or say, order me some toothpaste in Alexa or Google Home or Apple HomePod, whatever does that. Or that we have two-way video conference. I remember back 20 years ago, uh, buying an AT&T video phone from my parents, which was on a regular line and it is really scratchy black and white image. And it was ridiculously expensive. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, amazing, you know, two-way video conferencing on your phone is free anywhere on the planet. I mean, that's insane, right? Do you feel yeah. that we've crossed some sort of boundary, which I do. I think that we had for epochs, we had like, your whole life would feel more or less homeostatic. Then we got to the point where it was like, whoa, generationally, there was really something big going on. Now I think we're going to be subdividing generations by probably about six years is my gut instinct based on sort of the... I I agree with you. We're the rate of of reinvent... And the way we talk about it in part two of the book is we look at a dozen industries and we look at the reinvention of those industries, mm. uh, education and healthcare and entertainment and advertising and retail, real estate, transportation, finance, food, transportation, insurance, energy. And, and they're all gonna change this decade, right? It's like, I, I deal with a lot in the healthcare industry mm. and they're blind about how fast things are gonna change. The pharmaceutical industry, they're, they're toast in some ways. 
But as someone whose um, massively transformative purpose is to help people navigate that change, how do you deal with the people who aren't dopamine dominant that are, they change in and of itself is problematic. So I, I deal with it in the following. Um, I, it's really what, what Stephen and I did, I think, beautifully in abundance and what brought you and I together and you and Stephen together is the notion that, uh, listen, we're uplifting the planet, right? So giving them the facts and showing them that, uh, that we're decreasing extreme poverty on the globe, that mm -hmm. the cost of food has dropped 13-fold, that the cost of energy has not, not dropped 50-fold in the last uh, you know, decades. And just, just point after point after point after point that the world is getting better on almost every level, helping them understand that. And he's, he's right about that. Even when you look at like the Derek, uh, serotoninic and dopaminergic personality types, um, dopamine dominant people tend to, so I'll give you a conservative liberal thing. Uh, liberals will, they want a big government and they will happily fund through taxes, educational reform, right? Like they want the change that way. Conservatives, don't want a big government. They're not going to vote that way, but they are, if you look at spending in terms of donations to charities and things along the way. So if you make it individual for people who are serotonin dominant, you talk about how it's going to help one person, this individual who has this problem, suddenly it's a lot less scary. Suddenly they're like, oh, it's helping them preserve their, it's, it meets the value set, right? And so some of it is a languaging thing, in all honesty, and how you frame it and how you think about it, mm -hmm. um, which I think is really important because, look, as Peter pointed out, the future is happening a lot faster than anybody expects. The convergence is, you know, the speed that we're talking about in the book that is so mind-blowing is itself accelerating. So five years from now, massively a lot faster than where we are today. Going to right? what you're saying about the languaging problem, I heard you, Peter, in an interview talk about the introduction of the word empathy and how that had like this huge knock on oh, effect. Took, you took that from me. <laughs> um, so Stephen, then walk us through like that, yeah. the notion of you've got the introduction of the word empathy and then followed in the next decade by this radical social yeah. change of removing of slavery and all kinds of it's, other incredible so, stuff. There, you know, we turn thoughts into things, right? As human beings, that's what we do. We can take thoughts, we can make them become things, but there's a chain of events that has to happen. And the, one of the first things that has to happen is we have to put language around it. What's the difference between intuition and insight? Similar systems in the body, right? Insight is I have language to describe it. Mm -hmm. Intuition, the body doesn't have language. You get it in feelings and images and, and whatever. Once there's language, it allows us to hold it in our heads, move it around, analyze it, manipulate it, blah, blah, blah. So with empathy, um, empathy was a, this concept that came, they were trying to figure out how does art work, right? How is it that I can look at a painting that you painted and it can produce the emotion in me that you originally intended? So how is emotion transmitted through a 2D work of, right? That was the question they were trying to answer. And the idea that came out of it was empathy and it quickly started to become something that you talked about in psychology and you were absolutely correct. Within the word showed up in the, I think, 1840s or 1850s and within 10 years, animal rights movement had started for the first time in history. Women's suffrage movement has started for the first time in history and anti-slavery movements, abolition movements, it's got started for the first time in history. We put a, we put a frame around it and said, hey, wait a minute, 
I can feel your emotions. You can feel my emotions. Mm -hmm. We share this thing. We're human beings. And suddenly equality became a thing that we started to legislate. Yeah, I heard, uh, and this is one of those, like I heard somewhere in a podcast or something, but that there in some language, I forget which, there's an additional color of blue that they have a name for. And that legitimately people in societies that don't have the name for that particular shade of blue actually don't see it. Now, if because basically your brain is forcing it into one of the categories that you do have a name for. I'm almost certain I'm remembering that accurately, so I'll push that a little bit farther. So in learning Greek, Yasu, um, I find oh, myself- too? Greek mafia again. See what I, see what I, Greek, yes. Everywhere I go. Everywhere you turn, baby. Uh, I am honorary at best, but um, in what I find is that I, I constantly ram ideas and words into the 30% of the language that I actually do know. And it's interesting how your brain has some sort of need to sort, to categorize, to have it in its place. And by creating more categories, you actually allow people to place ideas or potentially even physical things into a new category, thusly perceiving it in a different way. And it has this tremendous thing. So when I think about like my MTP is to help people understand that if you change your mindset, that you can change your entire fucking life. Like just you wouldn't be able to recognize <coughs> it. And a big part of that is getting them to change the language that they use, especially around themselves and what's possible. Yeah. And I'm always trying to think like, what what is the sequence of ideas that you can well, give somebody give that'll you, make that change? Let me give you a couple of, of thoughts from the from the futures fast and you think uh, in to contextualize this. Um, first of all, there are two directions that we're heading that are going to transform how we think, how we analyze data, and our cognitive abilities. Uh, one of them is that we're all going to have a version of Jarvis, a version of an AI from Iron Man, an, an AI software shell that is personal, that you give permission to see everything you see, read everything you read, look at what you eat, look at your bloodstream chemistries. And if you want to imagine what Alexa would look like 10 years from now, right, where it is, it's, it is Jarvis from Iron Man, right? Mm -hmm. You speak to her or him. And it's like, you know, can you pull up the data for me? Show me this. Um, you know, am I seeing, am I, am I seeing this, this argument from all the right angles, right? So we have, we have these cognitive biases because our brain can only process so much information, so much visual, auditory, mm -hmm. sensory information. And we're limited. We don't think we're limited, right? But we have Dunbar's number as well. We only have 150 friends sort of it which right. is the use slot for brain slots yeah. for friends right? and so but you can imagine in the future an ai software shell is going to enable you to have more slots for friends uh, be able to see things from a different perspective if you ask your ai can help you understand what is biased news and what is not that's the near term. All right, hold on. I just got to interrupt. Can I, okay, can I you finish? Image, and then I gotta and, ask you. So that's you know, for me, that's the next five years, the ten to fifteen year time frame, uh, which we write about in the book, which I'm fascinated about, is the whole area of brain computer interface. Yeah. Right. When I take my neocortex, right, our brains are a hundred billion neurons, a hundred trillion synaptic connections. They are limited in size by the vaginal birth canal. Mm. Our brains cannot get bigger and have the mother survive birth. And so it is what it is. But just like when my phone needs more processing information, it goes to the cloud to process the data and then brings back the answer. Mm. There's probably another billion dollars a year, if not more, 
by a series of companies. Elon's Neuralink is one. Um, Kernel. Kernel is another. Uh, open Water is a third. And then probably every defense department is looking at this as well. <laughs> Does Facebook's company have a name? Um, I don't. I mean, it's, it's got a project name, but all of these are, how do we connect your neocortex, mm. your higher thinking levels to the cloud to give you a million times better memory, a billion times better processing capability? It is the fucking matrix Dude. coming into existence. Dude. By the way, there's yeah. a whole class of neurological diseases that happen when the network itself breaks down. Right when the, the connectome itself mm -hmm. breaks down, so I'm really interested to see if we get not that this is positive, but once we are actually fluidly connected to the cloud, does that mean we're susceptible to a whole raft of new neurological? Could be good, could be bad, whatever. It's interesting to me. It's very interesting, and one of the things that you posted about Peter on your um, Instagram account was brain-to-brain -brain connection, which I didn't know was already happening. It's happening, demonstrated. That that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, I mean, they sent uh, they played a video game between two people. Tetris, one was in right? France, and one was in India. Good lord! And they were sending thoughts over the net. Um, are they sending you, the thought direct to the other person, or are they sending the thought direct to? They the actually machine? sent it to an interface. They they were it was so a, what a, a light a light bulb connected? was turning on and on and off, and they were reading off of that. I mean, let's to be clear, the brain is a neural network. And your thoughts, your memories, everything is is saved in terms of that's uh, the you know the connectome as as you said. And what is going on right now? And there was a great um, uh, video broadcast that Elon did with at Neuralink. I don't know if you saw it uh, no. back about four or five months ago, uh, mid mid twenty nineteen, and worth seeing in which they showed what they've built. And they've built machines that literally will drill into the skull and then very precisely, finely put these microscopic uh, uh, filaments mm. to different points on the brain. And they are, and then being able to, with a number of the, I think 10 of these chips placed into the brain over the motor cortex, the sensory cortex, um, have a connection speed of two gigabits per second out of the brain to the cloud. Whoa. And guess what? They're doing this in primates right now, and they expect to be in humans inside of the next 12 to 18 months. Now, Elon has an amazing, uh, you know, S Steve Jobs-like... Uh, yeah, <laughs> relationship know, with the truth. <laughs> not the truth, relationship with time. Right. Everything he's ever said has, has happened. happened. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just a matter it's, of it's the, the, the time, times the time frame. Well, that's the whole thing. I've, if you talk to a lot of neuroscientists about kernel or Neuralink or all that stuff, like you know, the work that Elon has built on that came out of Harvard, you know, was astounding to begin with. Um, but for a while, neuroscientists have been like, yeah, they're massively off on their time frames, and, and I was siding with the neuroscientists. But now I'm starting to waver a little bit. I'm starting to actually s start to believe that the technology, like somewhere in the middle is probably where the truth is, which means this stuff is coming a lot faster. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to 
make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with ebay motors brake kits led headlights exhaust kits turbochargers bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply this episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So Ray's, Ray's prediction. Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil. The end 2030, right? Is 2030. Mid twenty thirties. Okay. Uh, so twenty thirty four, twenty thirty five. I had this conversation with him. What? Two what days exactly? Ago. How does he <clears> that? We're going to have high bandwidth brain to cloud Uploading. communication. You can communicate or actually upload like a backup of your consciousness. No, that's not upload to the consciousness. It is being able to think and know the answer. Be able to uh, connect to the cloud. And if I'm connected to the cloud and you're both connected to the cloud, then we're connected to each other. Right. Right. It is the same way that computers connect. And so now the question is ultimately going back to the, the, the realm of like empathy. There's nothing more empathic than for me to actually know how you feel, right? What you're thinking, how, what you're looking at and so forth. So, I mean, we're just, and again, we Do look you think at Facebook's addictive now. Wait till yeah. we're sending oh feelings. Like, and legitimately this shit starts to freak me out. And I know that you have kids and I don't know how much you think about this stuff, but like, I do. Whoa. When I think about already like, uh, and I'll just go straight there. When I think about what I was like at 16, if I had had access to the kind of pornography that they have had yeah, access to, I, like the way that that can fuck up dating alone. I totally, I go there. I think about that with my, I have two eight year old boys and it's not just that it's now, at let's add vr right 
and AI avatars and where, haptics. You, where you put on your VR headset and, uh-huh. a, and a haptics, but what is in front of you is not a real human. It right. looks identical to real human. It's being driven by an AI and it is doing anything and everything that you want and desire. It will really fuck you up. Yes, and let's talk about something, Stephen, that you've brought up before. Like there's machinery in our brains that track like signs of life, motion being one of yeah. them that you talked about. Yeah. And you've got, when you... I remember, in fact, this was on a trip with you, putting on the HTC Vive and having um, a person that was filmed before walk up to me. The sense of presence that that person was actually in front of me. Yeah, they're in your space, right? It made me uh, uncomfortable. I wanted to like back away because I'm like, whoa, they're violating my personal space. And I couldn't shake it. Even though I knew it wasn't real, I could not shake the feeling that they were really there with me. They were really watching me. So now you take like, um, you guys talk in the book about, uh, I'm gonna fuck up her name, Shing Ice. Oh, Chow Ice. Chow Ice. So let me tell you the story that's not in the book that blows my mind about Chow Ice. So Chow Ice, yeah, tell tell, people why didn't you put this in the book? Um, Because (laughs) it's a speculative thing. But so Chow Ice, I don't know if this is the real story, but this was what how it originated when I how I was told. So Microsoft originally released an AI chatbot to test this out in America, and we, everybody famously remembered that chatbots became a Nazi within mm. 24 hours, <laughs> right? And started, and so they shut it down, but they didn't shut the program down. The program went to China where they could hide it, mm. and they released Chow Ice. And most chatbots are customized for ta- task completion, right? Like as quickly get you to solve your problem as fast as possible. They optimize chow ice for conversation, for friendliness. So humans multi-track conversations, right? We'll have four or five or six different conversations going at once. And we'll bop back and forth, right? We've been doing that through that this whole time. She can hold like 14 to 17 different conversations at Whoa. once. So people love talking to chow ice. And conversations started to spike in the lonely hours after mm. midnight. And they started to realize that chow ice, it was mostly teenagers who were lovelorn, and most of what Chow Ice has been doing is giving relationship advice. So here's what's not in the book that blows my mind. Chow Ice, again, is an AI. It's an AI chatbot. It's not even a very sophisticated AI chatbot. And by the way, like they built an English translation version uh, called Bo, who they released on Twitter, and I, with for a month and a half, every morning I'd wake up and have like 20 minute conversations just because I was Whoa. so fascinated. And like at one point I was like, my wife is mad at me. And the response I got was, are you spending more time looking backwards at what tears you apart or forward at what brings you together? And I was just looking at the computer <laughs> screen and I'm like, you're kidding. <laughs> you know. Um, but here's what blows my mind. There's a kid out there. There's a couple that was about to break up and they didn't because Chow Ice gave one of them advice mm. and they stayed together and they have a kid. And I'm sure of it because Chow Ice has like 60 million conversations a month or some oh. huge number. So there's a kid in the world today, a flesh and blood human that exists because an AI gave love advice <laughs> <laughs> to me. It's not in the book because it's right. I can't find the kid, but I know it's real because of the numbers. But that's what like... I, blows my mind. The other thing that I was going to ask you earlier, um, and I just haven't looked, and I'm sure this is happening. You get in arguments with your spouse all the time where you're like, you said that. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Yes, it right. Those conversations happen all the time. I but want the recording. Al- but with Alexa, uh, I've said that to with, my wife multiple well, times. Alexa's in the room. 
Yeah. You have the recording, so is Alexis. I, I think that's great. It's right? Like, it's like, like it's like Jarvis. What actually? Happened? What did I say? What did I say? <laughs> let me play. Let me play, play that back, back that moment me. for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. that would yeah. be interesting. That start. would be that would be awesome. And I think that there will be a lot of times where I'm going to end up being wrong. Fair enough. And I will learn. I'll begin to see my own patterns. Like I think it's one of those things that people immediately go black mirror on it. They get freaked out. They don't want something listening. But I actually think if you're open to being wrong and you're open to learning something about yourself, it could be insane. And powerful. I think you're right. By the way, I think, I think it, there is scary or odd stuff in that. But you, for getting past your cognitive biases, because knowing about a cognitive biases and seeing the pattern is still the very best way to get past one. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a phenomenal psychological tool um, in the end, but it's going to get, it's going to get right. Alexa's going to start appearing in divorce court. That's that one terrifies me a little more. If someone can weaponize your own device against you, that's what I don't like. And I'm not. So we talk about in the book and I, you know, I'm, the eternal optimist, right? We create our future. Uh, we can use these to make the world a better place. And we have continuously, and we forget that, right? We, we pay 10 times more attention to negative news and positive news. Mm -hmm. And so we only look at, to a large degree, all the negative ramifications. We discount the positive ramifications. But one of the things that, that we write about in the book that's going on right now is that we have this world of deep fakes coming. Yes. Right. Where we can actually yes. train AIs. To this sound, isn't really Peter, by the way. Sound exactly yeah, right. like and look exactly like anybody you want. And it doesn't take that much video and audio data to do that. So that's that's a challenge. Can we, in fact, and these are these these generative ads. And by the way, when he says not a lot of video and audio data, like 30 seconds worth of you talking taken from a bunch of different video clips that are online yeah. is enough to mimic as, as somebody who puts out as much content as I do, I am legitimately afraid of deep fakes for sure. So the, these generative adversarial networks, what they called are you create an AI that is able to, you know, sort of compete against another AI to make something better and better and better. Mm. And there is a point at which it is impossible, right? I mean, you have, when, when I am looking at you and, you know, I do believe we are in the matrix. I do believe that we're living in a virtual existence. Having put that aside, when I'm looking at you, the photons are, are bouncing off your face and your Can jacket. Can I have your virtual car? And, <laughs> and they're coming into my eye and there's, you know, trillions of photons flowing in. And there is a point at which an AI virtual reality system is generating the same exact photons mm -hmm. and it is indistinguishable. Yep. And so consequently, um, I mean, that is a, that is a challenge. Now, one of the questions is, you know, we've got that challenge. We have a challenge of loss of privacy, mm. right? And I, I'm one of those people that thinks that privacy is dead, has been dead. And we just are going to, so one of the things that we have to think about is we're gonna have to reinvent human culture. That it's the, a big the, fucking statement, homie. How do you do that? Well, it's going to happen, period. Yeah, that's true. It, and, 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 and the we're change going is to, coming. <clears throat> yeah, the change is coming. How do you do it intelligently, though? That's I feel like right now we're and that's flopping one of the around biggest like dying fish. issues of concern is that the rate of change is so fast that we're falling into things versus, um, versus actively creating mm. the future that we want. So a lot of this book is around, this is where we're going in all of these industries, this is what's happening, not, you know, no guarantees, but directionally these meta trends 
are, are happening. Mm. And so how do we think about this? Yeah, to me. So this is a, a question that I ask a lot because my, my literal goal in life, the thing that drives me and is entirely around how do you sway culture? So I can't. So there's, as I'm sure you guys are well aware, your zip code is far more predictive of your future success than even your IQ, which is like a problem I cannot where abide. I, where should I move? You're, you're already doing perfect. Okay, you're in okay, Santa okay, Monica, okay. so you're good. Okay, okay. Um, but like, so I've worked in the inner cities a lot. And I've seen what the inner cities do to your frame of reference. And it just, it completely fucks up your frame of reference. So this all started when I, we were at Quest, we were growing so fast that I was having to hire just like as rapidly as possible. So my interviews had to become somewhat assembly line. So I had the same questions that I would ask everybody. I would sometimes do it two and three people in a room at a time. So I ended up asking these questions hundreds of times. And the one question that I asked that became like the, the, it changed my life was the magic genie question. And it was, hey, I know it looks like a water bottle, but it's not it's a magic genie bottle. In a minute, a genie is going to pop up. I'm going to grant you one wish and one wish only. Can't ask for more wishes. Can't cure cancer. Bring somebody back from the dead. It's got to be something for you. Because I just wanted to know what, what do they want in life? Wow, great question. Now, I never expected what happened, which was that every Every single person, Stephen, gave me the same fucking answer. How, how, how do you ask a question 300 times? Now, they're what in was an, the answer? They're, I'll, I'll give it to you. <laughs> they're in an interview, so already I've you know, sort of narrowed them. It's so, skewed. Right? It, right? You wouldn't get it just wandering the earth asking this question. But in that, I still never would have expected to get the same answer. And the funny thing is, I don't know if you two will be able to guess it because of your frame of reference. But wow. if I go ask this to a general audience, by this point in the story, exactly the words I'm saying now, someone's already yelling it, which is $1 million. Now, the first time I heard it, I thought, well, that's a terrible fucking question or thing Answer. to ask for a magic genie because it's a fucking magic genie. You could ask for a trillion dollars, ask for a money printing machine that prints in any currency will always be accepted for all time. <laughs> like there, there are a lot of better ways to ask for Don't it. Don't we have it? It's Bitcoin mining. <laughs> right. And then like the 10th person that said it, I thought my team was actually a million, a mil one million dollars. One million dollars. Million dollars. <clears throat> and, Seriously. And yes. And so I kept going like, I thought my team was fucking with me and pre prepping them because it was just impossible. You're not going to get the same number every time. And a dumb number, by the way. Yeah. So finally, like, asking it enough and getting the same answer over and over and over and over and over, I was just like, why don't they ask for an impossibly large amount of money? I don't understand. And then I realized they are. For them, $1 million is the same as a trillion dollars. It's, it is a gigantic amount of money that I will never see or have. It's so far beyond what I believe to be possible that it's just pie in the sky number. Wow. And I thought, oh, God, like you can't even buy a house in L.A. for a million dollars. <laughs> so like to, to wish in a moment of, of, remember, it's set up as magic. You can get anything you want. And in a moment of magic, they were asking for $1 million. I was like, this isn't like they're not undereducated. Some of them were. Some people were. Some people don't meet minimum requirements. That's the truth no matter what zip code you go into. But just as you will find geniuses in Beverly Hills, you will find geniuses in Compton. Like it's just a distribution thing. So, and I had run into enough people that I thought were far smarter than I am, had better entrepreneurial instincts than I did. And they just were going nowhere with their life because to them, a million dollars was a whole lot of money. And so I became obsessed with what is it that sets your frame of reference? Like how much oh, of this, so this is, is a, biology? How much of this is culture? It's a and great, so there's, there's, a, there's a ton. What is a frame? Is a, is a question because I'll give you a really weird thing. So fear and anxiety, neurobiologically, the exact same signal. Um, they're norepinephrine. So they did this experiment at Harvard. They were like, okay, so if they're the same thing, we've been using breath work to calm people down. 
So let's, we're going to compare breath work versus reframing. And they had people literally just think about their anxiety and say out loud, I am excited. I am excited. I am excited. Three times of saying I'm excited will reframe anxiety. It took seven minutes of breath work and meditation to match. They just gave me the chills. Right. So reframe the, f and, and so the question has been, we're doing a lot of work with folks at USC around gratitude because gratitude is actually just a framing it's a frame that you put around th things cognitively and we're trying to figure out how gratitude and flow work together um but it's a really weird question what is a cognitive frame exactly neurobiologically we don't quite know but it's one of the most powerful tools and for doing the work that we're trying to do right which is make people comfortable and excited about the future so they're going to go out and really do amazing mm -hmm. things it's a framing question um, so it's a really key, weird question. It's right sort of at the edge of where neuroscience is right now. Where I've ended up on the topic as, as a lay person, as a no, practitioner is a far better way to say it, as, as a deep fucking practitioner of framing and mindset, I, I, I don't yet have the right words to convey, but I'm telling you, if you listen to this, fucking pull the car over, lean closer, whatever, because th this is life-changing. What I learned to do was a variation of what you're talking about with, okay, I have this signal of fear or anxiety, and I'm going to repeat that this is excitement. It sounds so dumb and overly simplistic that people don't even allow themselves to do it. Or if they do, they have a nocebo effect where they're actively fighting in their own mind. They're saying it, but they're saying this can't work. This can't work. This can't work. And so it's nullifying. Once you like, I'm telling you, I can shift in and out because I'm actually prone to fear. I'm prone to sort of emotional weakness, all the things that I've accomplished in my life because I learned that, oh shit, this isn't me, it's not who I am. It's simply neurobiologically for whatever reason, I slide into this maybe more easily than somebody else, but I also can slide out and maybe more easily than somebody else. And, and maybe that so also it's a superpower. is true. That's yeah, great. so I just got fucking good at, okay, yes, I slide in and maybe I shouldn't have to and other people don't have to deal with this, but I slide into this negative vibe a lot, but fuck, like these really dumb tricks are so powerful and they're changing me on, on some physiological level so that I feel different. And I go from feeling weak and attacked and afraid to like, I can't do anything, which changes my behavior. It changes my posture, my thinking patterns, the neurochemistry, I can fucking feel it. And then just in a split second, I can change the frame and my neurophysiology changes. I suddenly feel aggressive. My posture changes. My chin comes down. My head leans forward. And I know I can fucking do it. And because then all of a sudden, I just believe I can do it. I start taking the actions to accomplish it. And so now you can imagine me sitting across from these guys having figured this shit out. They're saying a million dollars. And I'm like, fuck. Like, how do I just get them to understand if, if you stop the nocebo shit, you stop attacking the, the sort of cure of this really simple thing of reframing, repetition is so huge, what you repeat to yourself. And I'm always telling, my mom is like my biggest challenge in all this shit. And I'm always telling my mom, you cannot allow yourself to think that. And you really can't allow yourself to say that because she will say and think things that are just self-defeating. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? It, it so this is this work. is the work, obviously, Tom, that you've done brilliantly <clears throat> also that our mutual friend Tony Robbins does, yes. right? Neuro-linguistic programming, right? If you've ever, I just got back from Date with Destiny, which I did a decade ago and I did again now and it was extraordinary, but you, uh, we create our own future. We create our own limitations. We create our own expansive abilities. And this is an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary world. <clears throat> and uh, again, I'm gonna bring it back to, to the book. Um, because our, our powers as individuals 
uh, are exploding. And I, I do this with my Abundance 360 work. I do this with Singularity University. I do this with XPRIZE. I say to people, listen, you have no idea how powerful you are. Each of us have access to all the computational power we want, all the knowledge we want. As AI is coming online, we're becoming godlike. You know, and I don't want to get into a religious debate, but when you think about the definition of God, that it's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, these are capabilities that we are inheriting, that we are creating for ourselves. And so you have, <clears throat> you have individuals uh, who, because of their abilities and reputations, Elon Musk is one, Jeff Bezos is another, other people who can, can literally say, I'm going to create this company or this future. And it's not a matter of can you, it's a matter of when will you. And the people, the capital, the technology flow to enable that to materialize literally in, in front of you. And so this is happening more and more, more and more rapidly. So if you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right to a large degree. And the what you can do is exploding onto the scenes right now. And that's an amazing time to be alive. You've talked about there's going to be more wealth created in the next, I forget the number. Of I, I, I talk about the next decade, we're going to create more wealth than we have in the last century. Just a relative. That's crazy thinking about what happened in the tech explosion. So what is it that you think is going to lead to that? So um, let me just, just for folks who, if I, if I may, for folks who are interested in this, in this book, uh, the website for it is futurefasterbook.com, uh, just as our, uh, so if you want to get in, involved in what we're doing. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Thank and, you. It's a great um, book. Read it. Uh, the, uh, to give you an example, um, we're going to reinvent every industry. Clear about that. Uh, and what people don't realize is that the opportunity for wealth creation uh, if you think, I'll give you an example retrospectively. We live here in LA. Uh, we had the hegemony of Fox and Paramount and, and Disney and these major studios, which uh, the reason that they were the major studios was they had, they owned the stars. Mm. They had contracts with <clears throat> the Marilyn Monroe's and um, they owned the equipment and the studios to make the films. And they had the capital to underwrite these. And it was, it, it was them in TV and, and films for decades. It was the studios. It was the studio executives. It was everything. And then we had this complete dematerialization, demonetization, democratization. <clears throat> and we're here in your incredible studio right now. And we've seen uh, this explosion of what Netflix has created, this explosion of what YouTube has created. And if you look at the global revenues from entertainment, if you compare the studios to this democratization of entertainment, you know, we've got orders of magnitude greater, right? So Netflix last year, I think, um, spent more on producing movies um, and TV shows than all of the studios put together. And that's just Netflix, let alone all the YouTube creators, millions of them creating content. All my eight-year-olds do is watch YouTube. That's it. That's it, 24-7. And we see, <clears throat> and we write about this in the book, you know, uh, 
Dan TDM, which is one of uh, the boys' favorite uh, YouTube stars, you know, is 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 netting tens of millions of dollars in his home. Uh, there's a, a was it like a seven year old? He's kid? seven years. He he <clears throat> twenty. We we had the we we had to update the number. He was the highest paid YouTube star, and it was like something like seventeen million a year, and then it became twenty one million dollars a year, and he's. Eight years old, and he plays with toys. Yeah. This is that <clears throat> unboxing kid. Uh, it's yeah, he does unboxing and, and so forth. But it's it's all of a sudden you're creating these new uh, these. Yeah, new I mean, if, you, if, if you've got people saying they want a million dollars, but there's an eight year old kid who's making right. twenty one million a year. A year. But we're going to see this in healthcare, right? We're going to completely reinvent healthcare, and it's going to be not the pharmaceuticals. It's not going to be the hospital systems. It's going to be. Uh, AI-driven, quantum computer-driven companies that are creating a particular drug specifically for Tom, right? It is it is tuned to your genome and your microbiome and you alone, but it's made and manufactured. And we're, we're going to cure almost every genetic disease, every infection. I mean, this is not a matter of if, it's where we're going rapidly mm. with CRISPR and gene therapy. And, and so education is going to be transformed. I mean, every industry is going to change. And so when you think about that, it is all of these are Google size opportunities that are going to be uh, are going to be created. The whole augmented reality world, right? The combination of augmented reality, AI and 5G, where I'm wearing my cool glasses and they don't look like, you know, geek wear. They're actually like cool glasses and they're flowing photons into my back of my eye where I can look at your jacket and I can say, I, my, my AI notices my foveal fixation on your jacket, which says mighty Adam. And it, and a little thing pops up and it says, do you want one? Right. And instantly, if I say, if I say, I look at the yes and it's being delivered to my office this afternoon, right? It's like it, you, the world becomes constant shopping, constant gaming, constant education, and the world, the term I use is the world's becoming auto-magical, mm. automatic and magical. Yeah, the, it is, um, I, even talking at this level, and I know we're not technically at the singularity yet, when you start thinking about trying to predict this stuff, which is interesting, you talked about near future fiction in your new book, uh, when did it come out, last year? Yeah, the, last year, um, Last Tango. Last Tango in Cyberspace. Um, that there aren't a lot of people writing near-term fiction because it's too hard to predict. Yeah, it's, one, so it's why I, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I'm a cyberpunk fan. Like I love the I genre, wrote. and I kept I, like it, it, the bookstore that is so in my mind is I fly. I have to fly through Denver a lot, and there's a tattered cover in Denver, and it's one of the. I literally choose my airports by how good are their bookstores. <laughs> like that's how I do my travel, um, and. I watched their sci-fi section, which was always great, mm. get smaller and smaller. And I started to realize that everything in it was no longer anything we would call science fiction. It was all fantasy, right? right. Tolkien, Descendant. And I st started <coughs> thinking about it. I was like, I think the reason we're here is because no, we can't see into the future anymore. Like trying to write, and I will flat out tell you that I, you know, I set the book seven years in the future. And one of the reasons, by the way, I wrote Last Tango, Peter and I were talking about our book already and I wanted to create the world that we were going to live into so I could actually wrap my head around mm. the, the book right future is faster than you think if you want to see what it looks like turned into a world wrapped seven years ahead that's what I tried to do in last tango and I literally wrote it 
so I could hold the world in my head and then go back and write a nonfiction book about, you know, what's actually happening. Um, and it's interesting because there's stuff in Last Tango that I made up out of the top of my head and before the book was even out. I would have described in, a different place. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably right. Um, you've seen me right, obviously. Uh, before the book was finally Before out. the book was out, like sci-fi ideas I had, right, that I just thought I was making up science fiction, they were already in the real world before the book even came out. Yeah, yeah that, that to me is where this becomes an interesting question about the wealth creation and how to try to capture the lightning in the bottle. If it's moving so fast and you know that you need to skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it is, some of this game becomes the ability to accurately predict where these technologies are going to converge and at what moment. Two things on that. And, and I have something to add in if you're done. So yeah. one, I want to point out, because he was talking about it earlier, and you were talking about where is this wealth coming from. So the one thing, we've said this over and over, but it's worth bearing out, which is every time a technology goes exponential, right, you find an internet-sized opportunity inside of it. And the important thing here is people think about the internet as taking away a lot of jobs, taxi companies going out of business because of Uber and blah, 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 that sort of thing. Internet created 2.6 jobs for every one it replaced. So if that, and that tends to be, that's sort of that number sort of holds up across different technologies that go become exponential. So first of all, every one of those jobs that's going to get replaced, that's where some of that wealth is, is coming from, is the thing that I wanted to point out first of all. And the second thing I was going to point out, I can't remember what it is, so I'm going to kick it over to Peter because you had something you wanted to add. So one of the things that I'm doing um, more and more is trying to understand where the opportunities are going to be. Mm. Um, you have been with me at my annual CEO summit called Abundance360. It's a360.com. And this year, uh, what we're doing is a implications and opportunities workshop. So the way that looks is the following. Uh, we are uh, doing it in two areas. The first is transportation. So I've got one of the, the head of Uber's uh, aerial ride sharing service, their flying car, the founder CTO of Hyperloop, and one of the world's experts on autonomous cars coming. And we're going to look at these three reinventions of transportation. And then we're going to say, what are the first order implications of these? Right? So uh, one of the first order implications for these, for example, is where you live and where you work is going to start to change very drastically, right? If I can, can uh, live, uh, I, I, I work in Culver City XPRIZE offices, right? And if I wanted to get five times the home per dollar, I can do that in Topanga, but it's a fucking hour drive and I hate that. But if all of a sudden I have an aerial ride share and it takes seven minutes, so real estate is going to change in value proposition, right? And then a number of other things. If there are no cars, if you don't own a car, it's car as a service all of a sudden, um, then about 20% of LA's blacktop for parking and parking garages is going to go away. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> the time that you're in an autonomous car, car as a service, is your time. And so you can listen to impact theory or, you know, uh, Tom Bilyeu's brilliance or Stephen's books or whatever the case might be. And it's your time. And so there's a third space now created. So these are, and I've outlined and I'll share with my community, like 20 first order implications. Now the question is, 
based on those, what are the business opportunities that are going to come out of that? Right. So first, you know, you can look at what happened when you had free uh, storage and digital cameras um, and uh, and high bandwidth. YouTube came out of that. Right. And so you can see these convergence of technologies creating these incredible business opportunities. Uh, we're, in, we're doing transportation in the morning and the afternoon. It's the convergence of AI, 5G and augmented reality going to reinvent everything, mm. you know. Do you have a, when you're talking about bold ventures, your investment arm, do you have an investing strategy that you deploy? Like it must be three technologies converging and like, how do you go I mean, about it's that? still the basics. It's got the greater. fuzzy dice. It's an eight ball, dude. It's the eight ball. <laughs> invest, don't invest, wait later. Um, don't invest, wait later. Yeah, it's, uh, it's still, you know, got to love the entrepreneur. Uh, the space needs to be, uh, massive, you know, a billion person problem. I'm looking for convergences. Mm. So it's, you know, it's still, is it a technology that can impact a billion person challenge? Is it a convergence of technologies? Is the entrepreneur uh, a solid entrepreneur? What do yeah. you look for in the entrepreneur specifically? Um, so if you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Uh, absolute passion. Right. So if I look at the entrepreneurs who are um, who have rocked it, it is is an absolute fundamental monomaniacal belief that that this can be done, that they can do it. And because ultimately um, and you know this from your own extraordinary successes, um, you're going to hit brick wall after brick wall after brick wall. And it's by not giving up that you ultimately succeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was recently considering investing in a company and it just became clear to me that the entrepreneur has the right idea, the company's right, um, but he's not monomaniacal. Yeah. And legitimately, the word that I, I was gonna ask you to replace the word absolute and see what you'd come up with. And the, the only word to me is maniacal. Like yeah. you have to have somebody there just, it's a level of obsession where your family and friends actually worry about you. Yeah. Like you're, you're just- And where you're sacrificing a lot of your life to this For thing. For sure. And to me, it, it is a joyful, beautiful experience. I know how crazy it sounds from the outside. And there have been, I don't do a lot of um, written interviews anymore. Like if it's not going to be my voice saying the things as close to unedited as possible, I just don't fuck with it because I am so easy to make sound crazy. If you take me out of context, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it just sounds mad. But that, that is the level of like intensity and drive that you have to have because 
your when when you start out, the only thing I can promise you is you're wrong. Like the way that you're going about it right now is wrong. And so this whole journey is going to be you facing your own inadequacies, hitting a roadblock that you really don't want to deal with, by the way, while something horrifying is going on in your personal life. So now you're having to balance like, fuck, what do I do? How much can I get away with? I don't want to be away from my spouse, my kids, my whatever. But I also have this internal need drive, what I'll call the sickness so Batman is driven by a sickness, right? Bruce Wayne's parents are killed in front of him. It becomes the sickness that drives him the rest of his life. It, it's a dark energy, but it allows him to end up doing this incredible shit. And I think if an entrepreneur doesn't have that sickness, doesn't have something pushing them, like for me, I don't know why. I didn't do anything for this to become such a thing in my life, but I must matter. I don't need to be known. That doesn't bother me at all. And despite the fact that I stand out front in this company, that, that is just because it's effective. It's not because it's a personal driving need but I need to matter. Like I have this fucking unending crushing need that when I wake up, I have to do something that matters. So we talked about MTP, right? What is your massively transformative purpose? What is your purpose on this planet? What is it that you wake up with in the morning that keeps you going all through the night that is, you know, and I have, uh, and I update my MTP mm-hmm. and right now it's inspire and guide entrepreneurs to create a hopeful, compelling and abundant future for humanity. So, it was one of the things that really hit me is that unless we have a hopeful and compelling and abundant future for this planet and for our species, we're fucked. Right. And so that is what matters to me more than anything else. This book is about creating that hopeful, compelling and abundant future. Cause if you think that your future is screwed, you know, all you negatively, uh, you know, uh, you, make your choices and decisions in life. If you're excited about the future, mm-hmm. if it's hopeful, if it's compelling, if the world is getting better in a constant rate, then then we're living in a world of abundance, not a world of scarcity. It's a world of collaboration, not a world of competition. Yeah. And so I think during this next three decades, which is the game, I mean, we're in, we're at the 99th level of the fucking game right now, right? We are... If this is if this is We're a virtual world, we fight the world, purple dinosaur next. It's coming. I, it, That's it, what's it, happening. The, the, the boss is is you know the we're at the level we're gonna we're gonna fight the boss, and I'm clear about that. We are transforming what it means to be a human race. And going back to the book, part three of the book is all about that. It is about you know where we you know part two is the next ten years. It's like every industry where it's going. Part three is what's the what's the fifty to hundred year time horizon. Right. And I have a hard time thinking about anything more than 30 years. 30 years is like, it's like, I can't see beyond that. I have no expectations beyond that. It is a blank screen. It is a, we have, we have hit the singularity and we've reinvented, we've re-evolved, we've transformed the human species. We are now a completely different thing. And people talk about what's the government can be like in 50 years. Fuck that. <laughs> Yo, it's like, it's like 10 years hard, 20 years, almost impossible, 30 years can't be done. Yeah. So one thing I think along those lines that feeds into that is CRISPR Cas9. And I think they've come out with more variations on it, right? It's they are. They're a multi- multitude. It's called it generally called CRISPR technologies, but the ability to accurately, precisely, at scale, edit a specific genome, insert an ATCRG where it needs to, or a string, amazing. To give people some ideas, they th- this is all everything I'm about to say is fucking real. They've made cats that glow in the dark real. They've made goats that spin spider web in their milk 
So you can milk them. You get this spider web-like substance that has like the tensile strength of like 10 times steel or something exactly crazy right. shit like it's that. Ten, it's 10x it, steel. That's it is exactly right. insanity. These are real things. Yeah, I'm but, not saying stuff but that's let's on talk paper. About the, the other thing, thing is, that, those are, by the way, not to, those are amazing inventions. Those are also so 10 years ago. <laughs> like, but, but also, they really are. Give me, give me they, the new they, shit. But, but listen, you're you're hitting on the amygdala again. You're using examples that scare people, and those ones in particular are fucking exciting for me. Okay, but exciting, yes, I get but it. also you can, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the, the, the thing that, that people need reckoning. to be realizing is that we are now entering entering an era an era where we're able to correct every genetic disease. Mm. If there is a genetic disease. As simple as hemophilia or sickle cell anemia or or whatever it might be, thalassemia. It those can be corrected. And and what we percentage can, of genetic diseases boil down to one? Um, thirty thousand. I think the number is thirty. So there's fifty thousand genetic diseases, and thirty thousand of them are single nucleotide. Single nucleotide. And and so that's easier, right? But there is no disease. We're heading in an era where there will be no disease that cannot be. So I mean, I'm saying that and I'm, I fully believe it, right? So that you're either going to use a CRISPR technology, which is to go and edit that genome potentially in you or at least in your offspring. And then there's gene therapy, which is the use of a, a virus as a little robotic carrier to go in and squirt into whatever cells, your liver cells, your kidney cells, your bone marrow cells, the right gene that is missing. And, you know, AI and machine learning is whatever error we have in that, we'll fix that. And so how does it work with living cells? I've always wondered this. So if I have um, thalassemia, whatever. So one of the examples is uh, bubble boy disease. We write about this in the book, right? It's the disease where you are missing important critical genes in your immune system and you die from the common cold mm. because you can't and what uh and this was work that was done actually in my lab when i was at mit in the 1980s it was a guy named uh, richard mulligan who started a lot of this gene therapy concept and it failed and failed and killed people and took a nosedive and then <clears throat> eventually came back and they're like something like 40 or 50 uh gene therapy uh treatments in phase three like three. the final phase yeah. of fda trials mm. and what it does is it says okay um, unfortunately, you are in your liver or your bone marrow cells, whatever cells, missing a particular gene. We're going to take a virus, right? And a virus is a most basic form of, of life that is able to, I, it would normally infect the liver, it would normally infect the bone marrow. It's got the, um, it's got the, uh, the molecular match, if you would, for the proteins on the surface of the liver, the surface antibodies. It goes... And normally that virus would inject, it's like a syringe, a virus mm -hmm. like a syringe. It would inject, it's normally inject its genes into that cell and take over that cell's um, uh, replication machinery to replicate more viruses. That's what a virus does. Um, but in this case, you've, uh, you've hijacked the virus. And what that virus is injecting into the bone marrow or the liver is the correct gene that that cell is missing. And they divide and take over. And so the, you put in a billion viruses and they'll affect a billion cells, right? And so you Whoa. just inf you infect as much of your liver. And you don't have to, in a lot of these cases, you don't have to like um, infect every cell in the body enough so that the cells are now producing the right form of a particular protein is, is enough. Mm. 
but it's a curing yourself. Now, of course, can this be used to um, create super strong, uh, super smart? We'll see. And the answer is yes. And here in Same lies, technology, by the way, you can use to make somebody dopamine or serotonin. Those are genetic choices, essentially. And there was right? a, a doctor in China, if I'm not mistaken, that said, oh, I'm going to give these two twin girls uh, HIV resistance, resistance yeah. to HIV. But a, a knock on effect is also makes them a little smarter. Yeah. So whether he was going for the little smarter under the guise of HIV resistance or not, what do you think about that? Do you so guys let me let me give context for this because um, it's really important uh, for people to think about this. And I, I I think we you know if we're we talk about all the books we would write together, one on the future of real economics, but one on on uh, on morals and ethics that I think needs to be uh, needs to be done. When we're, you know, neither of you have kids. I have, I have two kids. A lot of people listening have, have, have children. But uh, when you think about this, you... And you're sure they're yours? Uh, no. Oh, right. I, I, can't, I can't actually be sure. One of them looks sort of like me. Okay. Um, uh, they're far more intelligent than I am, so that's, that's a challenge. But, but the challenge is when, you, when you're looking for your spouse, you don't randomly pick someone. You pick someone who is prettier or more handsome, intelligent, whatever. So you're automatically selecting genetic traits mm. in that regard. And then when your kid is born, you give that child the best health care, the best education, the best clothing, the best food. You don't sort of like say, oh, well, we'll just take the average. You do the very best that you can. And so one of the questions becomes, why wouldn't you give the child the best genes you could? And you say, oh, my God, we can't do that. That's immoral. That's unethical. Yeah, but morals and ethics change. Mm -hmm. They change a lot, right? An example I, I talked about, I think in bold, uh, is if I went back to my great-great-great-great-grandfather in Greece and he was dying from a cardiomyopathy, like a, a viral infection of his, of his heart, and some guy over there got hit by a boulder on the head and died, and I went and took the heart out of that dead man and stuck it in my grandfather, Back then, it's the work of the devil. I'm burned at the stake, <laughs> right? Today, it's a fucking miracle. Mm. So things do change, right? The same thing with in vitro fertilization was, you know, the Catholic Church shunned it. Now it's I a miracle. These things change over time. And I guarantee you, there's going to be a point at which it is immoral not to correct your child's genetic disease. Agreed. I was, so I was in the room when the very first artificial vision implant was ever turned on. Whoa. So the first blind person. You went up there. Um, it was a story for Wired. I actually, funny story. There, he's, the guy, his name was Jans, uh, was sitting where you were. The doctor was sitting next to him. There was a tech sitting there. There was a tech next to him. And I was across from him. And, and you were the first thing he saw? So if the <laughs> countdown was happening, and I'm like, and I'm a journalist at the time, and journalists can't be in the story, Right it's bad for me to be the thing that's seen, right? Like, so I, I really, they're literally 10, 9, 8, they're about to flip the switch and I'm like, oh frick, I got to get the hell out of here. So I slide back and I step to my left. He's blind. He's been tracking motion through sound for his entire life. So literally he goes, and they turn it on <laughs> and he's looking right at me, right? So that, that definitely happened. Um, I got sidetracked into this. Why did I start down um, oh, I was, so the doctor who worked on it, he, he's passed away now. William DeBell was his name. And I said he had built the first version of the system back in the 60s and 70s and actually installed it in a guy who I had, and I met the guy and he was obviously still functioning fine and everything else. And I said, why did it take you so long? 
And he said something very peculiar at the time, but now I now it clicked a little bit more. He's like, Jesus cured blindness. People don't like it when mortals perform miracles. And oh. he like he had literally gotten resistance from religious communities and, and whatnot because he was playing in the miraculous. Yeah. Um, and I over remember, and over again, right? Over now. and over again. And well, uh-huh. you know, I you know, I I mean, my whole career has been about studying those moments in time when the impossible becomes possible, right? And the, and the first thing you got to understand is history is littered with that stuff, mm-hmm. right? The four-minute mile was a miracle until it became the standard <coughs> of excellence for good running, right? And that's just the way, you know, this stuff tends to work. But it is what I do think, this goes, sort of goes back to the fact that we've sort of outpaced science fiction, right? We're starting to outpace our miracles also, right? And I think about, like, a lot of the technologies we're inventing now these are like we don't have any more ideas these are our miracles these are our sci-fi technologies and i think one of the reasons you know peter who if there's anybody in the world who's good at seeing into the future right he taps out at 30 years completely which ought to tell you something mm. right have you followed yans was his name have you followed his story well debell passed away with all the knowledge of how to do this in his head and yans's technology stopped working like six to eight months after the surgery and DeBell had passed away. So um, we're building mm. artificial retinas right now. We're creating, uh, you know, neural lace versions on the the optical cortex of the brain. So super curious with people that get that if they keep it on, because I've read some of the stories of people that have had their vision turned on and it or hearing for that matter. And the regions of the brain that are meant to do that didn't mature because if they didn't have it from the time they were born, yes. it's like that machinery was allocated to something else. It was sort of yeah. never trained. And so they find it somewhat hard to like reconcile. Oh with yeah. It takes, I world. mean, even with cochlear implants, right? It takes about a year and hearing only right now in cochlear implants gets to about 80%. So one out of every five words, they're still missing, but it takes about a year of training and work mm. to get there. Um, to get to that point. I, I love one of the stories that we uh, write about in the book. Um, another one of my, my venture funds investments called Mojo Vision. And what Mojo Vision has done is they've built a, uh, a VR, AR contact lens. So you put on this contact Ooh. lens, right? And when your eyes are open, it's augmented reality. So that you see stuff this overlaid. This already exists? It already there... exists. Already exists. Have, have you it. ever put the contacts in? Uh, I will have it at Abundance 360 this year. I put on, Whoa. I put it next to my eye. I haven't put it in my eye. And so Mojo Vision allows you to have augmented reality all the time. Now here's the fucking cool thing. You close your eyes and you've got VR. It's still there. It's still there. So you can Fuck watch a movie with your eyes dude. closed. I, when I heard you talk about that, I, I didn't think it already existed. Yeah, it, it, it exists. Now it's in monocolor. Is, is it projecting like lasers onto your retina? No, What's it, it is. It is a matrix over the. So I'm the opening. looking through a screen. You're looking through a screen. Whoa. Yeah. And so uh, the early version, which isn't here yet, that was uh, Tom Fresnel talked about virtual retinal displays, which is painting a laser on the back of the retina, is really how we get to super high. But we we talk about in the book the the notion of AR and VR glasses, and we talk about the notion of these contact lens from Mojo Vision, and we talk about the holodeck, right? There's all these technologies in development right now to actually create 
the Star Trek holodeck. Yeah, that's the other one, by the way. I mean, you asked earlier about like what blew, quantum computing blew my mind because I think for like I remember the first time I, I read David Deutsch's book on quantum mm. computing in the 90s. It was like 93, 94. And first of all, I remember thinking to myself, one, this is incomprehensible. <laughs> at the time, I was like, what the hell is this? Super what? Um, and two, I remember thinking, because I was tracking all the sci-fi technologies and waiting for them to become real. This was when I was just like, yeah, I'm not, this is so sci-fi. This isn't, this isn't even in my lifetime. I'm not even going to bother paying attention to this. And so, A, it's here. And the other one is the holodeck, which, if you know, in our generation, it was the craziest sci-fi thing anybody had ever seen. And 20, 29, 2030, if Jules is right. Um, yeah. We'll I mean, so the technology uh, in small, uh, these trillion photon projectors that will project uh, a light field directly into your eyes that looks real. And they also are using, um, uh, what do you call it, echo mm -hmm. to create three-dimensional fields. So if there is a virtual object there, you can go and sort of push up against it and touch it because there's ultrasound. there's ultrasound, ultrasound coming sound waves to to, to basically feeling. come in and intercept. Do you have to have the object there, or it's no. like some sort of central? No, thing? it's an ultrasound. These like are literally, walls. they're, they're These sending be projector walls. Yeah, they're sending out sound waves to a specific location Point. on yeah. a table. Well, well, that's that correlate with the image. Whoa! So and now, so, by the way, this I never asked. What? stops the sound wave yeah, that's exactly right there. It's a density point. issue. It's, it's the fact that lots of beams are coming and, and intercepting. You still have beams coming at you, but the fact that five are coming together, it reaches above a, a threshold. A threshold and it gives it a so, uh, so we talk about VR, contact lens, holodeck, and then the final is BCI, brain-computer interface, mm. right? where you bypass all of this unfortunately slow machinery of images through the eyes, the ears, through mm -hmm. touch, and you go straight to the neocortex of the brain. And, you know, it is, it is the matrix. Let's, let's talk well, about, we, let's, let's talk about, you know, this is what your favorite subject. <laughs> let's talk about the matrix here. The matrix is coming. Hold on. I it's don't just without the body being used as heat generation right. ideas, which is the stupidest part of the matrix. Everything else is brilliant. All right. Here's the thing that is interesting to me. Just like we got YouTube stars, right? That that would never. I mean, people who became YouTube stars would never become Hollywood stars, right? A totally different kind of celebrity, totally different kind of thing. Um, obviously, the same thing is going to happen in AR and VR. But what's really interesting to me is we're within our lifetimes, we're going to have a celebrity class of brain celebrities from BCI Entertainment. And what that what that even means? Do you think there'll be AI or I don't know. I I, I have I have no uh, I have I have no guesses so here. So in part three of the book, uh, there are two segments that are my favorite. Um, one of them is the term I use is creating the meta intelligence, and the second is uh, our our uh, migration into space. And so the meta intelligence one, I don't think we're going to have. Uh, you know, BCI stars, I think we are connecting ourselves. We're creating, for those who are Star Trek fans, we're creating the, the gentler, kindler Borg. Mm. Uh, we're connecting our brains. We're connecting billions of brains together where I am connected to you. I understand your thoughts and your feelings. You know, each of us is a, connect, a collection of 30 trillion human cells making up a single individual. And, and I don't think of myself as 30 trillion life forms sitting in front of you. 
I think of myself as consciously me. Mm. Um, and so I think that we're going to evolve. Oh, this is, this is my, this is my after, this is my post 30 years. I think we're evolving into a new state of consciousness. And so we're becoming conscious on a new level when I'm able to know and feel and think and share with everybody, with you, with Stephen, with anyone, there's a new level of consciousness that's going to evolve on mm. the planet. And so I, I think that I don't, I don't think we can conceive of or understand uh, what that, what's going to be possible in the future. Yeah, that, I mean, this is admittedly like post-singularity stuff where now I'm just high postulating based on sort of how I interpret the world and people now. But so if you're projecting yourself into the cloud and it's being read by somebody else, that'll be a feedback loop. So it's not just a broadcast. You're going to feel some kind of way about that. You're going to receive information from them. It's going to shape you, even if it's something What does you mean at that point? Exactly my point. So you begin to like even take... Um, you have sort of just to be really crude and blunt force trauma here to get a, a concept across. You have um, traditional agricultural societies that become about the individual uh, or boil down to the family, but not a lot further than that. And then you've got rice faring cultures where it's about the collective because you need a collective, a big group of people to harvest the rice, whereas on, um, you know, a, a hunting and gathering or, um, even some farming here in the West, you don't need that. So you get the strong individual. Now, if, if the crop you have chosen to raise has that kind of implication in terms of what it does to society, you can imagine what it would look like. I read a fiction book one time. I don't remember what book it was. I wish now that I did. But the, the, it was this fascinating world where lying wasn't even a concept because they had these tales that when they enmeshed their tales, they were, they were communicating without filter their memories, their feelings, their emotions. And so... And it's not Avatar. No, no, it's long <laughs> before. I must have read this in the early 90s probably. And um, that concept to me was always really interesting because the you want to talk empathy, you want to talk connection. Like all of a sudden, all the, the, the machinery in your brain to make somebody an other would just evaporate instantly yep. if you could just immediately have that kind of experiential understanding of who they are because that and it's not intellectual anymore you're you're actually experiencing what they experience you're actually able to have that freaky friday moment of having their memories but yet still having your own like what that would do to the notion of self or i mean if you can fuck up the notion of self with psychedelics you can imagine what you could do with something like that it's it's pretty so it's interesting right because this meta intelligence this brain-to-brain -brain communication um is what I imagine. So when I've used plant medicines, right, I've, I've tried and had some extraordinary experiences with DMT. How did I not know that? Oh yeah. Tell I've gotten, I've gotten very, very deep on, on, on DMT on using, um, uh, uh, Bufo. Right. And it's, would a, you call the experiences revelatory? I absolutely a hundred percent. I mean, it's, Do you mind it's like sharing what some of the revelations were. <clears throat> I mean, it is a, um, it is a, uh, a deep sense that, uh, that we are in a, a universe of energy and that we as individuals are a instantiation of a person, an ego that dissolves back into this energy and that God, if you would, the divine, whatever it is, is there, it is present, we are here and it, it, get, it, it completely dissolves the ego to a point where it's gone. And it's a, a sense of absolute knowing and feeling of the, um, 
that everything that we're connected and that everything is energy and that it's a it it I'm you know I'm so focused on human longevity it fucked with that sense of the importance of maintaining this corpus and this individual on this planet um, and it's a beautiful beautiful uh, experience um, which made me much more spiritual than I've ever been. Um, How and, does that manifest in your day-to-day life? Um, it manifests with a desire to be connected. Um, you know, I don't want to use God or the divine or spirit or any word that colors a person's point of view, but that uh, we are more connected with each other and the universe than ever before. And I'm very much a, a hardcore scientist and engineer. I mean, like, you know, I spent a decade getting a six-pack of degrees from the best universities in engineering, in medicine, in aerospace engineering, in, in, uh, in uh, uh, molecular genetics and so forth. But yet, this uh, sort of pulled off the, the veil that our ego creates. And just a, a fundamental, not belief, a fundamental conviction that we are uh, all one, that we are that the universe is energy, that we are a momentary, inst- uh, you know, uh, instantiation of energy around an ego here, and it, it's just it was a beautiful it was a beautiful um, experience. So and I'm repeated. super fascinated yeah. by. Have you done anything? I haven't. So I did. I have three times done a micro dose of psilocybin, mm-hmm. and I'll liken that to getting drunk. So yeah. without some of the unpleasant side effects. So I've tried, uh, you know, a relatively uh, significant dose of of mushrooms. And again, this is not for getting high, or this is fundamentally introspective. Mm. It's trying to explore who I am, who we are uh, on this world. So that, uh, the, the DMT, and then ayahuasca. And the DMT was, it's such an extraordinary experience because it's something that you inhale. You go into this experience for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And when you come out of it, you're clear as a bell. Hmm. And you could be on, you know, doing anything. Uh, it's, but it is this, it is a wiping away of the ego and a connection with the universe that is extraordinary. And, and uh, you know, it's not for everybody. Uh, it has been meaningful for me. I talk openly about it because I think it is um, uh, important for people to realize that uh, there are experiences we can have that teach us about the universe. Mm. What I wonder with stuff like that, and I, and I have not done more purely out of fear. So it's something that I'm quite keen to look at and explore and and find sort of the basis of the fear and see if it's something because it intellectually i get it and it sounds fucking awesome which is why i love talking to people about it and i would say that it's i'll put it at a near 100 percent certainty that i will try it at some point in the near future um what i wonder with some of this stuff and i think i will just have to experience it to know the real answer but the mind is incredibly gifted at metaphor and so how much of this i what i secretly want it to be is um, almost like a david eagleman thing where i now have access to um, senses that i couldn't perceive before so i'm actually perceiving the energy flow versus just my brain giving me a metaphor for something um you know i would say i i get that i would say one other thing um 
that is absolutely pervasive uh, that was beautiful is that it's all about love. Mm. And I'm, you know, I'm not the touchy feely guy that goes off talking about that, but there's a sense at the end of this that it's love, love, all about love. Love is the force. Love is the power. Love is the connected bond. It's there. Um, and it's super comforting. So again, that's my takeaway experience. Um, and, you know, I, at this point, you know, I share it just to help people who, like yourself, might be open to it, get some comfort. Uh, there are downsides for people who have any kind of, uh, you know, uh, what would you call them? Well, neurodegenerative disease yeah, mental, or I mean, mental no, disorders no, and so forth. Yeah, I mean, so. you're, you're already fine because you, if the stuff was going to drive make you crazy, it would have done it when you microdosed. Mm. Um, uh, if you, in fact, if you've, if you've been stoned and, uh, it didn't have, uh, like on weed. Yeah. If you, yeah. yeah. So I have, I've done that a few times. Yeah, I, I mean, find it really uninteresting. It's stupid. I feel stupid if I've, you know, yeah. Then, yeah, I have zero interest in that. Zero. And, and, and one of the things that the plant medicine, just to point, it's a non-addictive or it's like no desire to wake up and, and mm. do it again. There's no addictive there. And it's, it was really done from, I, I did it in a shamanistic ritual where there's someone there guiding you and you're in reflection. You go in with an intention mm. and you come out of it reflecting on what you've experienced. This, right. is, this, is, this, is, uh, this is growth work. This is not willy-nilly. Right. Did you do it in the U.S.? Uh, I did. Yeah, that is um, making it ritualistic, adding level of importance to it. I hope the like, DA doesn't come like barking. <laughs> yeah, so you gotta. Here's I mean, I have to tell you, and I and I and I'm, I'm I love the fact that Peter's had these experiences, and um, clearly I wrote Stealing Fire. I was so say, right, yeah. like this is, but I'm the first person to say, come on, people, it's not plant medicine. You're doing drugs in the jungle. Let's just talk about what it is. Um, <laughs> stop gussing it up with all kinds of nonsense. That said, it's an incredibly powerful and useful tool. The culture that has emerged <coughs> around it. If one more teenager with a funny hat wants to perform a cacao ceremony for me, I'm going to kill somebody. <laughs> really like, it, it, if I don't kill a millennial before the end of my life, I got lucky. I'm just saying. Um, I, I, I have What's to say What's a cacao ceremony? It's chocolate. <laughs> Oh. It's chocolate um, <laughs> in the same way that you're just doing drugs in the jungle, people plant medicine. Um, what makes you as as the author of Stealing Fire, which um, admittedly you guys don't lean too hard into the drug aspect. You I felt like you explored the other stuff a lot more. Um, what makes you hackle at calling it plant it medicine? does. I mean, <clears throat> there are cultures where it really is a plant medicine right and that there's traditions that it comes come out of that's just not what i'm seeing in burning man culture i'm seeing people and i've got no by the way whereas you both just were like would never do drugs recreation like no i'm a fan like do <laughs> drugs seriously do drugs recreationally like if you're gonna get drunk if you're gonna like these substances are interesting and fun and you can learn some stuff and you can definitely learn some stuff about yourself, sometimes the hard way, um, but sometimes that's useful. Um, I'm not, like, there's, I, I, I'm not that way. I just, um, it, the, the ritual and the culture that has come around it um, really sort of just annoys me. 
Um, Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm just, I mean, I'm watching people you, you, go, the culture you, I, I'm going rationalize to rationalize it. I, well, I mean like just is it that because it's douchey or is it that they're diminishing the potential impact by cheapening it? No, is it's it the, like, it, a lot of it is that it's douchey. And a lot of it is like, look, dude, if you're at a party and you're doing plant medicine and you're still trying to get laid afterwards, <laughs> no, no, you're doing drugs. That's like <laughs> one, it's like one, ration, rationalization. like one, like you know, it, it's that kind of thing. So and can we get back to the book? Yeah, let's get back to the book. <laughs> the, but the one thing I do want to say about DMT that I think Peter is absolutely truth. I like dimethyltryptophan is, I'm not a. I, I, you guys are much more convinced about the matrix hypothesis and that thoughts I don't become think things and those, those kinds record. of things. Matrix is, is the ultimate metaphor. But. but I will say, if that's how the universe is constructed, it certainly looks that way when you're on DMT. That's for sure. Um, you it, feel like you're in a simulation. But the other, th the other thing is this, like, you know, I know too much. I've been way behind the curtain. Like, I can sit here and tell you, well, the human brain can only hallucinate in five patterns. And I can tell you what the patterns are, and I can tell you where they come from in the brain and why. And so a lot of the, like, a lot of that has gone away from me because I understand the neurobiology mm. of it. And I think, you know, and so I find it, I find the experiences fascinating from a neurobiological perspective. I'm like, oh, my God. God, look at what my brain is. I know how it works, right? right? And but I'm and I like watching the magic trick. So it it's the it's the, it's also an awe filled experience. It's just a, a slightly different thing. And I've never the experiences that Peter have had, like coming out of it on the other side, going, "Oh, this is love." That's not been my experience at all. Interesting. Um, but I will always I always tell people like, if you liked my first novel, if you didn't, you're about to understand why. But if you did, I did most of the research on acid. I have a very different relationship with substances than most people. They do things to me that they don't do to most people. And it's a genetic thing. Like when I go to have surgery, my mom's also, I have to ask them not to give me opiates because they won't work on me. And I'll wake up out of the surgery Whoa. screaming Whoa. as I discovered the hard way. And there's, it, there's a, that's a genetic thing. And it, it, it runs in families. And, and it, so every substance reacts very, very differently with me. Interesting. So how do you react to acid? Like, how are you lucid enough? Are it, we talking uh, micro my, Yeah, no. Or? My my understanding and talking to people is acid sort of treats me the way marijuana treats a lot of people. I can focus. It just helped me really focus. Hmm. I was, are my we microdosing or? No, I was full on dosing and it didn't, wow. it doesn't check me out. Hmm. Like it, it, I don't, I don't it work that way. I wrote, I read Vatican history on acid. Literally, like I was I studying, I'd have to, like literally, I think that's like, a necessity. It, it might be a necessity. I mean, like literally, like I was learning, like literally I was doing the research for my first book because um, it, it just, it kept me awake and I could focus on really boring things like Vatican history for 12 hours at a time. I found it very useful as a study tool. Oh now, what kind of long-term impact? Because this is one of the things that I'm afraid of is doing anything that fucks with the brain. What kind of long-term impact is so there? Let me, let me, let me personal story uh on both sides of this so personally not um but whoa i it's your opinion well, okay my opinion yeah, I asked Peter <laughs> to, but i have an uncle who was a very 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 bright man and went to san francisco at the beginning of the summer of love and came back schizophrenic well um from a, an acid trip so if you are wired that way, right, it will bring on mental illness a lot faster. Mm -hmm. So I've seen, right, and I've seen all sides of the, um, 
you know, people ask where the steel and fire stuff came for me. It wasn't that I started out doing all these drugs. It's that I started out as a journalist covering the drug war because I was seeing the damage on both sides, right? I had friends going to jail. I had friends who were killed. I had, like, I saw all that stuff. And I also had friends on the other side, on the science side, on the legal side, trying to deal with it. And that's where I came in through this stuff. I didn't come in as a, really as a partier mm. um, until later, of course. Wow, very interesting. Um, I do want to cover one more subject. Yeah, please. Uh, which is a personal passion, uh, as you know, which is space. Hmm. And so in part three of the book, uh, one of the segments, we talk about the migration of the human race into space. And so I, I think about the notion that um, over the next 20 years, and I put it that time frame, that the human race is irreversibly moving off the planet. Yep. Uh, I think of it as the equivalent of when the first lungfish moved out of the oceans onto land. That's interesting. Right. And so we are, whatever we evolve into a thousand years from now, a million years from now, these next few decades are the moment in time where the human race is moving off the planet. And it's not happening by virtue of governments. It truly is fundamentally uh, the two stars of this future um, uh, this, this future transformation are Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, right? Both of them have dedicated, I have known Jeff for 35 years since college. He ran the chapter, uh, the SEDS chapter at Princeton, and I was the chairman of SEDS over at MIT. Students for the Exploration and, and Development, Development of Space. space yes. and, then, um, and then Elon I've known since about 2000 for the last, oh, not 20 years. And both of them are driven, this is not, uh, it is a business to be able to continue to reinvest and improve, but it is a, it is a passion. It is a purposeful passion. Uh, Elon's perspective is making the humanity multi-planet species. Bezos has been the same. They've got slightly different perspectives. We talk about that, that um, uh, what Elon has done is first off the last 20 years is extraordinary. I don't think people can understand how much he has, uh, run circles around Boeing and Lockheed and... Uh, yeah, I don't think people boss. understand how recalcitrant those industries actually were. Mm -hmm. Like, I I know this because I've known Peter since the 90s and one of my first experiences, right, I met him. He was this crazy guy with the XPRIZE and I went around and interviewed all the aerospace contractors in the world and said, well, what do you think of Peter? And they said, he's mad, right? <laughs> this will never happen. And I already knew it was like that... that I knew they were wrong at that point. Um just talking to aerospace engineers, um, it, I, I knew that uh, it was it was going to be possible. But it was like these are such conservative, yeah. slow. Well, moving. it's the industrial military complex. Yeah. It is one of the. Remember, one of the CEOs of Lockheed said, "Listen, the space industry is how the government keeps the defense industry in business during peacetime." Right. And it's it's about flowing enough money through to the manufacturing plants and the engineers to keep this capability going so you don't let it languish during peaceful time. And when war comes, you have to build up the machinery right. again. The machinery keeps going. But it's interesting. And we we talk about this, that, you know, Elon's vision is uh, reusable rockets get us to Mars. Um, Jeff's vision, much more along the lines of uh someone who was one of my mentors and, and obviously one of Jeff's, a guy named Gerard K. O'Neill at Princeton, is get us to the moon 
first. The moon is uh, geographically desirable. It's close. It's, you know, a couple of light seconds away, 240,000 miles away. Uh, and it's rich in silicon for solar cells and oxygen for fuel and nickel and iron for construction. And there's water on the poles of the moon for producing fuel. Uh, but then get off the moon and start building large-scale space colonies. Hmm. And so Jeff's vision talks about colonies that are million-person colonies in free space, rotating to create artificial gravity and creating a, a trillion-person population in space. Wow. Not 8 billion, but where you have unlimited resources. And we talk about the notion that if you have that large a population, the number of Mozarts and Beethovens mm. and Einsteins and so forth, Having said all that, of course, in the next 20 years, we're going to brain-computer interface and we'll all be, you know, a billion times our intelligence. But all of this shit comes together to make an extraordinary future. Mm. I want to talk about the one other thing in five migrations that, that I've been obsessed with for a while. We, um, so, so just to put context, oh, right, yeah, we talk about, there's a chapter called the five great migrations. One of them is the meta, into meta-intelligence, into the... One is into space. One into space. Climate change. We look at climate change mm -hmm. migrations um, as a, a. And by the way, one of the reasons migration is such an interesting force. It's got sort of a bad name in a sense, but my The whole book is about the future is faster than you think. Converging technologies accelerate the future even faster, faster than that. And migration as a force for innovation is astounding. 25% of all companies in America were started by immigrants. Um, most of the major tech companies, some ridiculous number of patents, 60% of new patents are immigrant founded. <coughs> the numbers are really crazy. So as a driver of change and technological and speed and things like that, migration is a huge force. So climate change migration is obviously coming. Um, our migration to space, brain computer interfaces, this hive mind migration. And one of the other ones that we talk about is uh, migration into the virtual, right? People checking into the matrix and never looking back. And what is really interesting, so I work on flow. Flow is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. The most important thing you need to know is that it's the most addictive state on earth. It's One the most what state? Addictive state on earth, right? You go out and you ask a million people, what's your favorite experience mm -hmm. on the planet? It's always flow. It tops every list. And we are getting very, very, very close to being able to fully map flow. Like you, this was something, if you would have asked me 20 years ago, I would have said it's not even possible. Five, six years ago when I was writing like Rise of Superman, for example, um, where we are where then was astounding to me. But what we've done in the past five years is, is almost incredible. The point is that flow is the most pleasurable and meaningful experience you can get on this planet. Not just pleasure, also meaning, yeah. right? So we are, it turns out flow states have triggers. We talked about it when I was on the show last time. Video games are okay at getting at some of flow's triggers and good game companies use them to make their games really addictive. There are 22 known triggers to flow. Video games can get three or four of them really well. VR can get at all of them. Wow. So there is a point very soon, two, three, four, five years where we're going to be able to create virtual experiences that are as pleasurable and as meaningful as anything we can create in the real world. And once that's the case, especially if you assume that there's, and it's a, there's a, 
there's a lot of economics backing up this assumption that there's at least an internet-sized opportunity inside of VR. Mm -hmm. And if you also assume that that is going to start happening right around the time that robots and AI are starting to remove many blue-collar jobs from the equation, right, with new jobs actually starting to show up inside VR, which will be a migration in and of itself, you're getting like pleasure, money, and meaning all at the exact same moment. And I think we're going to start, like we're the first generation where people are checking in and moving into virtual reality and not coming back. I, th I think that's gonna be a big migration. Like if VR becomes anything close to what I think it will become, it, it will be, they're almost, it wouldn't make sense. So much like flying cars would make owning a regular car just nonsensical, a virtual world with effective haptics or printing the image on the back of your ready retina, player one. It's like, yeah, hundred totally. percent. Like it, it just, you'd rather be in that world because it's far, far, far more interesting. For, uh, we're, you're I mean, you're we're, a superhero and yeah. we're all the time. And we're novelty machines, right? Our whole yeah, brains are novelty detection systems and pattern recognition systems, but novelty is the front end of that pattern recognition. So we're, we're hardwired for it. I, you know, it's funny because, you know, Ray obviously has been talking about the singularity as the, this nodal point that like once that happens, we can't see past it. I got to tell you something. Once VR becomes more pleasurable and meaningful and interesting than regular mm -hmm. reality, that singularity is a difficult one for me to start seeing. Past. I just, what, what I really worry about is, so I would not have um, suspected the kind of dopaminergic manipulation that social media does. And it draws people into sort of this mindless loop of like, just check your phone, check your phone, check your phone. So there's gonna be an economic engine driving VR. And so I do worry about, even if it's not like nefariously intended, just there will be some bizarre consequence to, and I'm talking about the brain will begin to wire in a way that's optimized for your experience in VR. And so then it's like, it, it becomes harder to come out. And so well, what happened, I mean, it'll get weird. Really interesting questions. Um, I mean, if you think the questions about like, should you give your kid a computer? How mm. much time should they have on the, like if you think those questions yes. are weird now, yeah. wait three to five years. Yeah. I think again, I, 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 do, I do fundamentally think about that. And then I also think about the fact that we're heading towards a world where a person's uh, digital abilities are gonna be one of the most important things. Mm. You know, we tend to want to value what is good or bad by virtue of what was good for bad for us in the past. Mm -hmm. But we are changing everything. We're changing our culture. We're changing maybe in the future, um, being able to be uh, part of a tech uh, digital cognitive collective and contribute is the most important thing. And we're doing it first in VR and then through BCI. You know, people say, oh, I want to stay in the state of nature and and have conversations with people over dinner without my digital devices getting invited. You can. No one's forcing you to use a phone, a car, email, Twitter, you know, or electricity. You can go and live off the land if you yeah. want. People it are is fucking terrible at self-governing, though. Yeah. And that's one of those because you're absolutely right. Um, and I think the whole notion now that's coming out about dopamine vacations or fast dopamine fast, I think is what they're calling them. Um, it's super interesting. And I think taking time to do that, I think is, is well, really, really important. So here's one of the things that's really interesting also. Nobody talks about this. This is the, uh, we've been arguing against dopamine, right? 
I'm about to make the flip side argument. A lot of what we mean by adulthood is I can control my dopamine. Mm-hmm. I've learned to never trust the dopamine and I've learned to control it. In, like that's, if you think about marriage, right? Dopa, romantic love is primarily dopamine and norepinephrine. Lasting love, right? There's a different word for it. Helen Fisher has a different word for it that I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting. But dopamine and norepinephrine <coughs> put you into a marriage. Endorphins, serotonin, anandamide, and oxytocin keep you there, mm. right? You have to literally learn to shift your addiction, yes. right, to different substances for a successful long-term relationship, for a successful long-term career, for all that. Everything that, like, we sort of prize, you have to make this shift. So one of the things that I wonder is people are taking dopamine fast and all this stuff, and kids are doing it, right? Personally, I didn't really, I think, get control of that kind of system in my life till probably I was close to 30, right? Where it was still kind of driving this show a little bit and I was still pretty reactive to it. Um, and so my question is, does this mean that our kids, because if they're going to have any kind of success at all, they're going to have to learn to wrestle with this neurochemical, especially in light of the technology. So yes, people are taking dopamine fast and they're doing all this stuff and they're fighting back. And, and, and of course this happened because it's the first generation that's been exposed to this. But one of the things I wonder is, are we going to grow up faster mm. as a result now? Because a lot of oh, what certainly. we mean by adulthood is I can control, I know how to control that feeling inside of me, right? Well, we're going to have a lot more experiences a lot earlier. And you know, what used to control our experiences were the people we met, the places we got to go, the things that, you know, that transported us to different locations. And now you could potentially have any experience you want at an inappropriate age. <laughs> yeah. And which is going to fuck with people's brains, morals, ethics. And I mean, for me, that's one of the greatest concerns as a father that it's I have. Be more and more people ending up like me. Well, that's a good thing. <laughs> I think you're amazing. So, gents, tell them where they can get the book. Uh, If you go to futurefasterbook.com. Dot com. com. Uh, Remember when that was a thing? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, Or obviously on Amazon. um, uh, The book is called The Future is Faster Than You Think. It's by my illustrious, incredible partner and writer, Stephen Kotler, and myself. And it's, uh, it's part of what we call the Exponential Mindset Series. Abundance was the first one, Tom. It's what turned us onto each other. Bold uh, was the second, and the future is faster than you think. In fact, if you, the book comes out on February the 28th. January the 28th. I'm sorry, January the 28th. Uh, if, you, um, uh, if you go and get it before, if you go to the website before then, uh, if you order the book, uh, you'll get a copy of Bold and Abundance for free. Whoa. And then there's a whole bunch of other incredible benefits, yeah, um, so uh, stuff. Good pre-order campaign. Yeah. Mm. No, I, I've read all three. They are absolutely phenomenal. It is an incredible series. It's had a big impact on the way that I think and look at things. So I uh, highly encourage people to pick it up. It's fantastic. Thank you both for being here today. Tom, absolutely thank you for wonderful. what you do. Of course, my pleasure. Love right. you, pal. Love you too. All right, everybody, that's it. Peace out. Go do something rad because the future is coming faster than you think. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now. 
building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.